Well, we're continuing on in our series on Judges, and we're into chapter 7. So we're covering Judges 7, 1 through 25 today, which is a bit ambitious on my part to cover so much, but we'll see how it works out. Um, And the title is Gideon's 300 Men, and this is just part one. So Gideon's 300 Men, part one. When one teaches or preaches from the Old Testament, there's a frequent comment that that is heard from many people, not all, but, but many, that there's a lot of war in the Old Testament. Well, the, the Hebrew word for roar, war, excuse me, milmaha, or milmama, excuse me, occurs about 319 times in the Old Testament. So yes, there's a lot of war in the Old Testament. And that's just one term for war in Hebrew that's used. There, there are many others. We see that violence in the Bible unfolds quite quickly in in chapter 4 of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, we see violence erupt. We see a murder, actually a fratricide, a brother killing brother. Of course, this is right after chapter 3, the fall in the garden, so that's not surprising. But also in Genesis, in chapter 14, we read about what is actually the first world war, the the war of the nine kings. Peter Craigie wrote a book entitled The Problem of War in the Old Testament. He encountered this in preaching and teaching to a, a, a congregation of people that were not very biblically literate. And as part of their practice, what he adopted was this Uh, what he called a book of the month club. So each month they would read a book of the Bible and then discuss it. And he'd alternate between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And when the congregation read the Old Testament and they came back, um, I believe it was 1 Kings was the first book they read, when they came back to discuss it, they were astounded regarding the prevalence of war and violence that they read. So this got Craigie to thinking, how do we reconcile this this predominant theme of war that, that we find in the largest section of the Bible, that is our Old Testament, with this book as a whole, which is centered on the Prince of Peace? There seems to be some tension here that, that, that we can have a problem with. And how are we to understand the ethical teachings of the Bible, such as love your neighbor, which is found in both the Old and the New Testament, or turn the other cheek to an enemy, which Jesus taught, or as Paul told the Ephesians, do not let the sun go down on your anger. How do we reconcile this theme of war with the Prince of Peace with the fact in the Old Testament that one of the dominant representations of God in that section of the Bible is that of God as warrior. That's something that we have to grapple with. Things to consider as we ponder these questions. 
that war is perhaps the normal human condition, if normal equals prevalent. In his book, Killer Angels, Michael Schirrer wrote an account of the Battle of Gettysburg during the war between the states, what we, we popularly call the Civil War. And in this war, excuse me, in this book, in this battle, one of the main characters that he writes of is Colonel Joshua Chamberlain, who is a colonel of the 20th Maine Volunteer Infantry. Now, Chamberlain is not a professional military man. He's a college professor who has volunteered to come to war and to defend his country. Well, in a discussion with one of his sergeants, a sergeant who had been in the army for decades, who had fought in the war against Mexico, who was a grizzled veteran, who had been in many battles, Chamberlain, as an educated man, just happens to quote Shakespeare's Hamlet to this grizzled sergeant. And the quotation he uses is Shakespeare comparing man to the angels, the angels of heaven. And the grizzled sergeant just shakes his head and he says, yeah, Colonel, Colonel, if, the, if, if we be angels, we be killer angels. This seems to be the human nature that we struggle against. For the last 3,400 years, human beings have been at peace for only 8% of that time, or 268 years, according to Chris Hedges, who wrote a book, What Every Person Should Know About War. And Mr. Hedges was a combat correspondent who's seen lots and lots of wars. And he wanted to strip the glory and the mythology away from him from the idea of war and write about it as he saw it. And at the time he wrote this book in 2003, he said there were 30, 30 active global wars at that time. War is described as an active conflict in which more than 1,000 lives are lost. So we're talking about a massive amount of killing. We're not talking about a little skirmish when we talk about war. And if you spend any time examining the topic of war as part of the human experience, you come away, I would say, with two clear conclusions. That peace is the apparent desire of most people. I think most of us want peace. Yet war is the prevalent condition of mankind's experience. We want one thing, but we have the other constantly. And why is this? You're not going to be surprised by my answer. The answer is sin. It's mankind's rebellion against God. As an example, in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, Hanani, the seer, <clears throat> the seer, proclaims to King Asa of Judah, you have done foolishly in this, for from now on you will have wars. Asa had turned his trust from Yahweh to the king of Syria to help him in his war against the, the apostate northern kingdom of Israel. He no longer relied on God. The prophet, the seer, told him as a re, re, uh, as judgment for this, he would have nothing but war. 
And this message, I think, is for all mankind, that we turn away from God, and thus this is the result that we find. So, of course, mankind is in a constant state of rebellion, and we see state, we see uh, our state as being almost constant war. And think about this in regards to murder. Murder, of course, is evil and punishable by death. Why? Because man is made in the image and likeness of God. So in essence, when a human kills another human, the murderer is killing God in effigy. It's a likeness of God. Then war, killing on a grand scale that is greater than 1,000 deaths, according to Hedges, can be viewed as an armed revolt against God and his order. Now, of course, there's just war theory, which holds that all wars are evil, but sometimes it is uh, justified to be involved in war, and that's it's an interesting topic, but we don't have time for it, but there, there is that. And this quickly brings us to our first point, and that is the necessity of God. And when I say God, of course, I'm referring to the God as revealed in the Bible, the one true God. Without a divine creator that is intimately involved with his creation, how are we to have hope? How are we to have the motivation to continue on in light of the amount and level of violence that people inflict on each other? We see it daily around us. If not personally, we hear of it. We read news accounts of it. If we read history, it focuses on that. We read the Bible. We see it come up time and time again. If we are the accidental result of a mechanistic process occurring billions of years ago, then nature as the blind and accidental watchmaker who's unaware and unintentional in regards to his creation, then it's true, we have no hope. Our extinction is long overdue. We will not be missed in our passing. There's nothing or no one to take note of our demise. That's a frightening thought that strips our existence of most meaning. This is the way that our culture has trained and taught people to think. This is what we're facing today. On the other hand, if our creator is a divine being, like one proposed by deists, ones who do not believe in a personal God, but there is some sort of supreme being, in essence a board watchmaker, who makes a watch and is not really interested in it, winds it up, sets it down on the workbench and walks away and forgets about it, being completely transcendent and uninvolved in what he has made, then, well, it reminds me of um, when I was a police lieutenant. A police lieutenant is the worst job on the police department. When I got promoted to lieutenant, Karen said that was the year Ken stopped smiling. Hated it. You're, you're middle management. You're stuck in the middle. You're not out there arresting bad guys. You're not, a, you're not a sergeant out in the field making tactical decisions. Nor are you a command officer who's making policy 
changes and decisions on how the department should be run. You're just stuck in the middle. Well, a good friend of mine who was my former patrol partner, he was promoted to lieutenant at the same time. And we would have to attend staff meetings. And that was the big part of my life as a lieutenant and thereafter was going to meetings, 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 meetings. We'd go to these staff meetings and we would be given our marching orders. We would be told what we are to do. We would walk out of that staff meeting and invariably Greg would turn to me every time. He would turn to me and he would say, we're doomed. <laughs> we're doomed because there seemed to be no teleological um, thought to, to the decisions that we were uh, being given, the commands we were being given. In, in, in other words, there seemed to be no sight of the end purpose of what we were trying to obtain. It was like there were brush fires that were erupting and we were just given buckets of water to run here and there and, and, and to put the, the fire out. So, without a God who rescues his people, who has a purpose, who decrees everything that happens, then just like Greg said, we're doomed. Let's see what our text has to say about these things. Judges 7, 1 through 4. Then Jerubal that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. Gideon had raised an army of 32,000 men to fight the invaders from the east. <clears throat> and surprisingly, the Lord tells Gideon that he has too many men. There's too many warriors. And because success with such an army would be attributed to the size of the army. And the Israelites would boast in themselves, see what a marvelous thing we have done in defeating our enemy. So Yahweh wants the size of the army reduced. So he reminds Gideon of the law of warfare that's recorded back in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 8. In that law... Yahweh commands that men who are openly fearful before battle are to be sent home so as not to infect the other warriors with their fear. Now, this is, this is a law from the Lord God. So Gideon does what the law commands, what Yahweh reminds him of, and the Israelite men are then allowed to self-select themselves as fearful and trembling and return home. And just like that, Gideon loses 22,000 troops. He's left with just 10,000 of his original 32,000. And remember, the Midianites and their allies are described as being without number. It's a huge invasion that they're dealing with. Well, what happened to Gideon is not what any military commander desires before a major battle, obviously. 
We have to ask, when is enough enough? Again, during the United States Civil War, the war between the states, at the beginning of the war, the Union forces, the federal forces, were not faring very well against the Confederacy. The Confederacy was basically licking them almost every time they met. And Lincoln was having a problem with his commanding generals. They, they were not, they were afraid, they seemed to be afraid to engage the Confederacy. And when they engaged the Confederacy, they usually lost. He was in a predicament. He didn't know what to do, but he heard of this young general, only 35 years old, who was fighting in Ohio and West Virginia to great success, a man by the name of McClellan. And he called McClellan to Washington, D.C., and he offered him the Army of the Potomac, the Union Army, as the commanding general. Of course, McClellan, who had quite an opinion of himself and thought he had a wonderful future ahead of him as perhaps president someday, immediately took this job. And he tells the president, first off, I need more men. Abraham Lincoln gives him more men. McClellan trains them. They're just outside of Washington, D.C. He marches them around. He does drills with them. Abraham Lincoln asks him, are you ready, General? I need more men. We've got reports of the Confederate Army. They're huge. They're huge. They're without number. I don't have enough men. Lincoln gives him more men. He trains the men. McClellan goes into training again. Lincoln comes back to him and says, are you ready now, General? McClellan tells him, I must prepare. Now, McClellan was a wonderful um, administrator. He knew how to prepare. Uh, so he tells Lincoln, basically, leave me alone. You don't know what you're doing. I know what I'm doing. Well, it gets to the point where Lincoln finally writes a note to General McClellan and says, General McClellan, um, if you're not going to use the army, may I borrow it for a time? Here is that, and that's the mind that, that we have. We want more of whatever we think we need, don't we? We don't, we don't ever want less. <clears throat> Our nature is to want the odds to ever be with us. We want the biggest, the fastest, the strongest of whatever it is we think we need. Now, I realize that's a, that's a man's point of view. When I wrote that down, I thought, I'm, this, is, this is just man stuff. So what would a woman want? Well, I'm, I'm going to try here. Give you a woman's point of view. We want the prettiest, most exclusive, most glamorous stuff. I, I don't know. Maybe I should have just left that alone. Anyway, in either case, it's about image, right? It's about our image. And we care a lot about our image, Image is what drives Madison Avenue, that term we use for the multi-billion dollar advertising industry. They sell us stuff marketed to appeal to the desire to come across as poised, confident, and assured. And ironically, if we were truly poised, confident, and assured, we wouldn't fall for their ploy that we need that stuff to be what we already are, right? And maybe our focus and fixation on image is what makes the Bible difficult for us to understand. Because the Bible, unlike us, is not obsessed with image. Our problem is that when we look 
for what we want to see, we frequently see what we are looking for. And that's the catch when we're reading and interpreting the messages from our Bible. We can see things that are not there because we are looking for these specific things. So we must pay attention to the details in the Bible, even those that may not conform with our preconceived notions. And because of these preconceived notions, we have to realize that at times we'll be oddly blind and impervious to the main themes which are completely contrary to our human desires, especially the human desire and need, the, the felt need to elevate ourselves. We want and arguably need heroes. Compared to ourselves, our heroes are inevitably larger than life, at least in our imagination. But here's the thing. God does not need heroes. God does not call heroes. God calls servants. This brings us to our second point, the necessity of weakness. The necessity of weakness. In these verses 1 through 8 in chapter 7, Yahweh, the Lord God, insists on weakness. God takes weak people and equips them to do mighty things. This is what we see in the account of Gideon and Israel. Israel is totally helpless. Midian overpowered Israel. Because of Midian, the people of Israel hid in dens and caves in the mountains. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites and their allies would come and devour the produce and rustle their livestock. They were like locusts, and they laid waste to the land, and Israel was left with nothing. Israel couldn't be any weaker. Gideon also, he is insignificant, relatively obscure, and lacking in any sort of status. When the angel of the Lord appeared to him, he begged him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Israel and Gideon really have a realistic view of their predicament. Israel is outmatched and outmanned by the invaders. Israel is weak. Midian is strong. Gideon's only confidence, it appears, is that he is confident that the angel has chosen the wrong man for the job. We see as we read in verses 4 through 8, that we're going to read in just a moment, that 10,000 warriors was still too many. Israel was yet too strong in the face of the innumerable Midianites. So Yahweh is going to command Gideon to take action that will further reduce the size of his army. Judges 7, 4 through 8. I'm reading from the ESV here. I'm pointing that out. Many of you already know I read from the ESV. Because we're going to read from uh, uh, the new revised standard in just a bit. Because there's a, there's a little textual difficulty that we have to grapple with here. So this is from the ESV. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them 
for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, and here's the textual difficulty, putting their hands to their mouth, that phrase there, and I'll explain more, was 300 men, but all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Now many commentators have made note of this difficulty in the translation with verses 5 and 6. The primary uh, commentators I'm using for this sermon, or this series rather, is uh, Dale Ralph Davis and Barry Webb. But also the, the Net Bible with its uh, first edition notes, which is a very good resource that gives, uh, gives you some background into the original text, also aligns with them in this thought. This is what, this is what uh, Dr. Webb says. The description of the way these men were chosen in verses 5 through 6 is puzzling, almost certainly because the text has suffered some disturbance in transmission. We're talking about a scribal error, a copying error, and I'll explain more. So Webb goes on to say, the original distinction must have been between those who knelt and scooped the water to their mouth and those, the 300, who put their faces to the water and lapped like dogs. So the reason I bring this up is because the usual point made in sermons on this or even in Bible studies is... Gideon, God had Gideon choose the men who were tactically aware, who were natural-born warriors, who knelt down on their knees, scooped up the water, scanning the, the, the terrain around them, and then lapped it out of their hand like dogs. That's how it can be interpreted where we have that one phrase in most of our English translations. But think about that. That's not the manner of dogs drinking, as the lappers are described. A lapper does not drink from his hand. A lapper, a man who drinks as a dog drinks, puts his face down to the water. Now, the net Bible notes for 7.6, for Judges 7.6, have a, what's called a text-critical note, that, that, that the translators who are looking or the, the scholars, I should say, who are looking for um, what the original text actually says, um, they, it has this note. The Hebrew text, which is the Masoretic text, which is the basis for most of our English translations of the Old Testament, adds with their hands to their mouths in verse 6, as we read. But, he's, but the net says this makes no sense in light of verse 5, which distinguishes between dog lappers who would not use their hands to drink and those who kneel who would use their hands. It seems likely that the words with their hands to their mouths have been misplaced from verse 6. They fit better at the end of verse 5. So the common scribal errors that could 
that could go on here um, that, that these commentators and these, these scholars are pointing out. Um, there is, it's got a real big fancy word that I'm not going to try and pronounce because it's in Greek and it's about 17 letters long and I'll just mess it up. It's, it talks about an unintentional error of eyesight. When copying the biblical text, due to words or phrases that are very similar, a scribe's eye can move between lines and you can go to the wrong line and and copy something where it shouldn't be. Or another, another one, haplography, I can say that one. That's, that refers to single writing, when a scribe or a copyist miss, misses a repeated sentence of letters or words, something is, is left out. Now, since God uses human beings to reveal himself in his written word, then we shouldn't be shook up by the fact that we're going to find errors in in copying, God uses flawed humans, right? Some people really struggle with this. It's like, how could that possibly be? Well, I suggest to you, brothers and sisters, if you're struggling with that, go home, take the shortest book of the Bible, sit down and copy it by hand, and then see if you've made an error, just a slight error. I'd be very surprised if you don't. So this should not shake our faith in God's word. There's no scribal error uncovered by any scholar, no matter how um, uh, secular that scholar would be, that deviates one iota from what the gospel message is, from what the message of the Bible is. Do not let it worry you. Okay, but the, um, now we're going to read verses 5 and 6 from the New Revised Standard Version, which relies on the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint is actually an older text than the Masoretic text. The Masoretic text comes probably from the early Middle Ages. The Septuagint comes from before the time of Christ. As, as Pastor Steve talked about this morning, this was the text that was used by Christ and his disciples. This was the Bible of the Jews in the first century. This is what the NRSV says. So he brought the troops down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, All those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps, you shall put to one side. All those who kneel down to drink, putting their hands to their mouth, you shall put to the other side. The number of those that lapped was 300, but all the rest of the troops knelt down to drink water. So this leaves us with the reason why the lappers were chosen rather than the kneelers and scoopers. I've spent time trying to point this out because um, our, the prevalent interpretation of this, which comes from a very human viewpoint of the really good warriors were the ones that were chosen, I think can obscure what's going on here. That God is not having Gideon pick out the really astute warriors. No, not, not at all. And, and that's what I want you to catch here. That's what I want you to understand. So why? Why choose between them? Why the lappers? It's been suggested maybe because they showed less fear. <laughs> they weren't on guard while they were drinking. They didn't care. They just got down you know, face first in the water and lapped away like a dog. After all, fearfulness was a criteria for the earlier culling that had already taken place, right? The 22,000 who were sent home were sent home because they were fearful. 
So maybe the fearful weren't to remain. But when, when God had those, 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 that bigger group of guys sent home, remember, that was in accordance with God's word, God's command. God never violates his own law. So he could not have the fearful remain with Gideon and send the fearless warriors home. That'd be contrary to his word. Or maybe the lappers are chosen for the completely opposite reason, that by showing no awareness of the need to stay on guard, they demonstrated that they lacked the natural ability as warriors. This draws some plausibility from the reason given for the further reduction in the size of the army I just spoke of, lest the Israelites boast that their own hand has given them victory. And the less naturally able of Gideon's men, not so fearful that they self-selected themselves to go home, but they were less naturally able than, than the others, this would give God the greater glory that it was God's doing. A third possibility is that there was no significance whatsoever in the method. The method itself was just a way to choose 300 men, much like Gideon in the fleece. It was just a way of, 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 of dividing them. The 300 men were chosen simply because they were the smaller of the two groups. And the fact is, we simply don't know the exact reason why those who lapped were preferred over those who kneeled and scooped with their hands. But what we do know is Gideon's force was reduced to a mere 300 men to exclude any possibility that the coming victory could be interpreted as their own achievement. That's the point. That's what God is doing here. And we have to be careful not to read more into it because of things we want to see, like I talked about in our introduction. So now let's read verses 9 through 15, which tell us that same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Parah your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Parah his servant to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore is in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, and he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian, and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. This brings us to our third and last point, the encouragement in weakness. These verses that we just read show us the encouragement and weakness, how we find God's assurance in the face of our fallen human weakness. Gideon is a most unheroic hero. In verse 9, God orders Gideon to attack Midian's army. 
Yet, he offers Gideon an option before the attack. If you were, but if you were afraid, go down to the camp and listen. And Gideon takes the Lord up on his offer. And he goes down to the camp with his servant. He listens at the outpost. And he eavesdrops on two Midianite privates who are on sentry duty. And one private says to the other, hey, I've had a dream, a loaf of barley bread, a barley bread. I think what we're seeing here is symbolizing a poor Israelite farmer. Barley is like the, 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 the most basic lower class of grains, if you will. Barley bread is the common bread for the people that aren't so fancy. A loaf of barley bread comes rolling into the camp and hits a tent, knocking it down and flipping it upside down and flattens it out. The other century replies, that's got to be the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, a man of Israel. It means that God has given us into his hand. Dale Ralph Davis points out the irony in this. God's word of assurance comes to Gideon from an enemy soldier. It's amazing when you think about it. But this is not unheard of in the Bible. This happens frequently. Think of this. The Lord made a murderous high priest his prophet. In John chapter 11, we read that one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. The Lord God also made mocking priests and religious experts his evangelist. In the Gospels, example, Mark 15, 31 We read, so also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. That statement is the assurance of your and my salvation. That God, in human form, will save others, but he will not, cannot, because of the mission given to to him that he agreed to in the unity of the Trinity, he cannot save himself because that is not what has been decreed from before time began. Such a simple sentence with such deep meaning for us that it could be no other way. The Lord also made a pagan governor his stellar Witness in John, again, chapter 19, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. It was on a road that travelers in and out of the city were going to pass. And it was written in Aramaic. It was written in Latin. It was written in Greek. Every single traveler, every single person on that road could read that sign. Pilate, unbeknownst to himself, in ordering the execution of this man, advertised who this man was. He spread the word. He was a witness 
to all of the world on that road. So Yahweh's concern that we see here for his servant Gideon is very obvious. He tells Gideon in verse 11, afterward your hands will be strengthened. So the Lord knows our fears, yet he's not harsh with us when we tremble. He does not ridicule us when we are fearful. He does not mock us when we are fragile, because we are all of those things. And in conclusion, one of the innumerable things that we appreciate and recognize about the Bible is that the many people that are depicted in its pages are all remarkably human in their actions, their attitudes, their character, their doubts, their strengths, their witness, their weaknesses. They are just like us, brothers and sisters. We see stark and at times brutally honest portraits of how real people react in real situations. This is not legendary stuff like you read in pagan myths. No, where heroes are built up to be bigger than life. These heroes are very flawed. And we see that they would not succeed but for the Lord God. They would not succeed on their own. Human frailty, human depravity is not sugar-coated in the Bible. Thus we see the violence and the wars. Human triumphs are attributed to God working in and through the lives of his people. Unfortunately, it often seems that we miss this part of the story. Popular perception of biblical accounts is often superficial, frequently read reducing a complex and intricate narrative into a condensed child's Sunday school story, the flannel board view of the Bible that we've talked about before. Well, it's all well and good for children to hear stories about heroes from the Bible that sound larger than life. Yes, that, that's good. I, I, I encourage that. I support that. But it's not good when adults are led to think of the heroes in this way, in a childish way, that the heroes in the Bible are superior to us because they are not, simply not true. And if we think so, we are diminishing the power and the sovereignty of God's actions with his people who are, like I said, very much like us, fallen, deeply flawed, and utterly dependent upon God. And in dealing with the account of Gideon's calling to deliver Israel, why was Gideon unsure of the covenant relationship with Yahweh? Why was Gideon unsure of God's word to him? Well, we must not forget that Gideon was the youngest son in a family in an apostate culture. His father and his brothers his clan, his tribe, and his people Israel all had abandoned Yahweh and turned to, bowed down to serve and worship the Baals and the Asheroth. Now this process of apostasy does not happen suddenly. It's gradual. It's synchristic, which means that it, it, at first other deities are tolerated. Then secondly, they're accepted. And thirdly, they're celebrated. And fourth and last, the one true God is banished from that culture. This process should sound familiar to you because I think we're living through this now. And I would say we're probably somewhere just 
pass number three. So what Gideon experienced in his face-to-face encounter with the angel of the Lord and his dialogue with Yahweh was actually countercultural. And cultural influences on human beings are remarkably strong. And culture is not monolithic. Culture is composed of many different components. But these components often, I would say usually, work together towards a cultural hegemony, that is a predominance of what philosophers have called the world spirit, the Wildgeist, or the spirit of the age, the Zeitgeist, which I think is better understood from a theological perspective than a philosophical perspective. Basically all as mankind's helplessness is but at the same time love of the spirit of slavery to sin, as Paul writes about in Romans chapter 8, and the spirit of rebellion at work in all people who are outside of Christ, as he writes again to the Ephesians. So unlike the philosophical view of these ages, that there are different times, there are different epochs, There's only one world spirit. There's only one spirit of the age, I would suggest to you. From the time of the first couple's banishment from the garden until the return of our Lord and the finalization of his kingdom, we are all trapped in and by our fallenness, our fallen state. That's the age we are in. We are trapped apart, of course, from deliverance from it by our Lord and Savior. An example of this is after World War II, there was this well-known experiment in conformity that was, that was done by a psychologist by the name of Solomon Ash. He wanted to understand why so many people accepted and promoted and went along with the absurd theories of Nazism and Stalinism. It boggled the human mind, still does to think about it. So what What Ash did is he conducted this experiment. He took a group, multiple groups of eight people, but eight people at a time. And he showed them a line, a picture of a line. And then he showed them pictures of three other lines. One line was obviously much shorter than the first line. One line was obviously much longer than the first line. And another line was actually the right length. And here's how he was able to determine conformity, is that in this group of eight, seven of the eight were his own employees. They were instructed how to answer. There was only one actual test subject in each of these groups. And as soon as they were shown the three segments, his seven employees all picked the line that was obviously longer, without hesitation. The one test subject in all these different test groups, only 25% of the time was the correct answer given. And when these test subjects, the real test subjects, were questioned afterwards, many of them said, well, I knew the answer was wrong, but I went along with it because I didn't want to create problems. And what's even more frightening, actually, is that there were a large number who said, you know, craziest thing, I knew right away they were wrong, but I didn't want to go against them. 
And I started to think, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they're right. They know something I don't know. I got to go along with them. This is our fallen sin nature. This is why people line up behind totalitarian societies, behind dictators. We are strongly influenced by others to the point that we might accept what we know is wrong and even come to believe that wrong is right. And Paul warns us, he wrote to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10, 12 through 14. Bear this in mind when we think about something like Ash's experiment. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. You see how Paul connects this falling and this, this, being, this being conned to idolatry, which is what Ash was actually, from a theological perspective, that's what he was studying. Why, does these, why do these false idols of Nazism and Stalinism attract people? Of course, he was secular, so he wasn't looking at it from that position. It is God, it is the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ in us that keeps us from these things, from falling. And it's interesting that the text tells us that the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. What's interesting here is that seven is the generally acknowledged length of time needed to change the culture, especially within an organization. Midian had been oppressing them for seven years. This is going on. So this is ingrained into them. I experienced this uh, in my police career because leadership tenure in police departments is very short. The chief of the department generally only lasts two to three years before he or she is out the door. Now, at the end of my career, I was hired to go to a city on the East Coast, a city that had been racked with corruption, a city where the FBI came in one day with arrest warrants and search warrants and arrested the entire narcotic squad and hauled their computers and their files out of the police station. And it was then that the city said, I think we got a problem with the police. They didn't know what to do. They brought in this very well-known think tank of of, uh, law enforcement um, administration and executives, and they made some suggestions. Part of the suggestions were bring in some chiefs from the outside. So three of us came from California. We were recruited by this think tank to go to this large, one of the largest departments in the state, the largest department in the state that we were in, and try and straighten it out. We were given three years to do it. It was a contractual thing, had to do with the way the unions and the city worked. We had three years. When we left, it was like nothing had changed. We Me and another chief volunteered to stay. We'll stay a little bit longer, and we'll try and finish this out. They didn't want us to stay. The mayor said, you guys don't understand. You're West Coast, this is East Coast. You like the West Coast way of things, we want the East Coast way of things. Thanks for your time, but... So we left, and they brought in a new administration from 
a very large Midwestern city in Illinois that's racked with crime and corruption. I won't mention it. You know what I'm talking about. But they brought in a chief from there, from one of the most corrupt departments in the, in the nation, to straighten out a corrupt police department. And at that point, we're like, I'm going home. <laughs> I don't feel bad about what's happening. My point is, is that three years wasn't enough. Seven years, there's something about that. So when we're stuck in a time where things seem to be going against us, realize that you know this idea of seven years, this isn't something that humans decided upon. This seems to be how God has made us and how our organizations work. So if you're in a tough spot, you're in a tough time, it may take a while. But things always are righted by God. My point really is that if we solely rely on human efforts to change a culture, such as what was needed to turn Israel from the Baals back to Yahweh, it's an impossible task. We're not going to do it. This applies to any nation or group of people. For example, our nation. It requires a revival brought about by the Holy Spirit. But we, like Gideon, are not to remain on the sidelines. Even though we're weak, even though we're the most insignificant, even though, well, not the youngest in the family, but, you know, some of you are the youngest in the family. We are to pray, we are to witness, we are to preach the word and live lives obedient to the Lord. That's our task. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your message. Father, we give thanks for the assurance that you give us. Father, we struggle with our weakness. We do not want to be weak, Father, but we recognize that we are We recognize that our strength comes from you, Father, and that's the great assurance. Oh, I would rather be weak and have the Lord on my side than to be strong and do it on my own. Father, write this in our hearts and our minds as we go through this week, Father, as my brothers and sisters, your beloved, as they meet the tasks that they will have in this coming week, that they meet the challenges that they will have in this coming week. Lord, remind them of this, that you are with us always. Father, you will never abandon us, that our strength comes from you, and that you will prevail under all things. Father, bless this day as we continue to worship you this evening, Father. Um, Protect my brothers and sisters as they drive home and as they return for the 5 o'clock service. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.